Hey, this is broadcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, so please enjoy this encore presentation of the broadcast that originally aired on August 6, 2021. You may have heard, or you may not have heard, that The Daily Show is going to be taking a break what? over the summer. What? That's a thing? What part of Daily Show do you not understand, Trevor oh, Noah? God. Can I take a summer break? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Asking for a friend. I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle's KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We have one of your favorite daughters on today, Minneapolis. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for for joining us today. Uh, coming up, <clears throat> it has been another long week, and I don't know about you, but I could use a laugh or two. Oh, indeed. At least. So maybe we'll get one uh, via my guest coming up. Liz Winstead will be here shortly. She is the creator of The Daily Show, which just this past week was celebrating its 25th anniversary on air by... Not being on air at all and taking a long summer vacation. Must be nice. <laughs> I know. Can you tell I'm a little irritated by that? So, <laughs> Although they are still posting content on Twitter, so they're yeah, still active. Whatever. <laughs> so we will take the uh, the next best thing, which is really the best thing as far as I'm concerned, the Daily Show's creator right here on the broadcast, looking back at 25 years of what it has all meant for the news landscape in America or whatever the hell is left of it. Uh, and also some other things that Liz Winstead is up to right now. So uh, before we get to her, uh, can we at least try to keep things a little lighter today, Desi Doyen? We'll try. <laughs> Not easy these and, days. And by that I mean none of your apocalyptic green news reports today, Okay. <laughs> Just even though I know that we could do one on the heels of the one that we did on our previous broadcast, which would uh, and likely will be even more apocalyptic mm. in coming days, you can look forward to that. Mm, yeah. But not today. Not today, apocalypse. Not you. Not today. Anyway, uh, there does appear to be 
Well, here's something that appears anyway to be good news. Hiring surged in July as American employers added 943,000 jobs and the unemployment rate dropped to 5.4 percent, another sign that the U.S. economy continues to bounce back with surprising vigor from last year's shutdown. The July numbers exceeded economic uh, economists' forecast for more than 860,000 new jobs. That's what they thought they were going to get. They got 943,000 instead. Nice. The Labor Department also revised its job numbers for May and June. They added another 119,000 jobs there. Hotels and restaurants hard hit at the height of the pandemic are fully open again and doing brisk business. They added 327,000 jobs alone last month. As businesses scramble to find workers, as customers come back, uh, they have raised wages. That's also good. Average hourly earnings were up 4% last month from one year earlier, especially impressive because so many of the new jobs came in the low-wage leisure and hospitality sector. The number of people who reported they had jobs surged by 1 million, most of them since October, pushing the jobless rate down from 5.9% in June. Encouraged by their prospects, some 261,000 people returned to the job market in July. Leslie Preston, senior economist at TD Econ uh, Economics, <laughs> Long week. Wrote in a uh, research report, quote, if the pace of hiring over the last three months continues, all jobs lost due to the pandemic would be regained in seven months. Well, that all sounds good. And many economists seem to be absolutely giddy about these numbers when they first came out from the Department of Labor on Friday morning. And then a bit of reality set in. Preston added, however, the pace is likely to cool a bit and the risk of the Delta variant looms. The economy and the jobs market now face a growing threat from the coronavirus's highly contagious Delta variant, AP reports. The Labor Department collected its data for this report in mid-July before the CDC last week reversed course and recommended that even vaccinated people resume wearing masks indoors in places where the Delta variant is pushing infections up. And to say reversed course is not fair, uh, they changed their guidance due to changing circumstances on the ground, AP. Yeah, they adjusted course, as one does when new information becomes available. As you would want them to do. The outlook for the jobs market and the economy is now clouded, they note, by a resurgence of COVID-19 cases caused by the Delta variant. So, yeah, don't get too giddy, at least just yet, as President Biden noted this morning at the White House. My message today is not one of celebration. It's one to remind us we got a lot of hard work left to be done, both to beat the Delta variant and to continue our advance of economic recovery. We all know it's what it starts with. As I said again and again, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Buzzkill. <laughs> uh, it's actually interesting, uh, looking deeper into the numbers, there's yet another reason that the unvaccinated and irresponsible influencers and political actors 
who are causing them to be unvaccinated, at least from the right, uh, a reason why they may want to rethink their unforgivable undermining of public health by downplaying the virus and spreading doubts about its effective, safe and well-tested and plentiful, at least in the U.S., vaccines. Fewer jabs mean fewer jobs, reads USA Today's fairly clever headline. (laughs) Uh, States lagging in COVID-19 vaccinations are starting to feel it in the pocketbook, they report. States with relatively low vaccination rates and high infection rates, mostly those in the South, and West have seen slower job and economic growth this summer, according to two reports out this week. Conversely, states with high vaccination and low or average infection rates are leading in employment and economic gains, the studies say. Mark Zandi, chief economist of Moody's Analytics, says, quote, there's a lot of smoke suggesting that states that have a high infection and hospitalization rate Uh, and have high percentage of unvaccinated people are feeling the ill effects economically. Zandi says the more sluggish performance in less vaccinated, harder-hit states is quite notable. Lucas Pardue, an economist at Gusto, a payroll provider for small businesses, says the differences between the two groups of states are already, quote, very meaningful when measured by small business employment gains in industries like hotels, tourism, restaurants, entertainment and retail. The low vaccination and high infection rates in some states are likely prompting some residents to shop and dine out less frequently. Uh, and discouraging many employees from returning to work, says Pardue. From early June to late July, jobs in personal service industries grew faster than average in a given state for each percentage point that the state topped the nation's average vaccination rate, according to the uh, to the data. So uh, similarly, jobs grew uh, about the same amount slower than otherwise in a state for each 10 percentage point increase in new COVID-19 cases. Got that? So when the vaccination rate is low and the infection rate is high, there are fewer jobs. And the converse is true when the vaccination rate is high and the infection rate is low. From early June to late July, the states with the most sluggish small business growth was Tennessee, Kansas, Mississippi, and Georgia. The ones with the highest, the largest employment advances, Vermont, Delaware, Montana, and Maine, all with among the highest vaccination rates in the country. For example, Mississippi had the nation's lowest vaccination rate in early June at just 27.9%, and COVID cases there grew 628% are more than sevenfold from early June through late July. Personal services employment at the same time fell by 2.3% during that period. So the more people that get vaccinated, the more they are helping their economy. Yes. I mean, a pretty direct correlation Yeah, there. it is pretty direct. Here's a contrast. Vermont, with a 60% vaccination rate, one of the best in the country, uh, they saw jobs in those uh, same industries increase by more than 17%. Broadly, in reports both from Moody's and Gusto this week, uh, states in the South and West with low vaccination and high infection rates 
fared worse last month in efforts to reclaim their pre-pandemic showings. Just another reason, in addition to, you know, killing their own voters and their own viewers, that Republicans and Fox News and the rest of them on the right may wish to rethink their appalling strategy at this point in the pandemic. Well, I don't know if they will, because I think they plan on running on saying that Biden's vaccine strategy failed and it's Biden's Uh, fault that the economies in those states aren't doing better. So they don't even care if the economy improves. They don't care if their own voters die. They can go to the polls next in in 2022 and say, look what a disaster Joe Biden's response has been in these red states with these terrible economies. Ah, yeah. He's killing you. Vote for the other guy. Something like that. Now, for those of us who do give a damn about the health of the nation and its people, no matter who is in office, a bit more good-ish news today from the administration this afternoon. The Biden administration announced on Friday an extension of the federal student loan payment moratorium. Until January 31, just weeks before the pause was set to expire at the end of September. In a statement, the Department of Education said this would be the, quote, final extension and that it felt a, quote, definitive end date would reduce the risk of delinquency and defaults once payments actually restart. So you see why I called it good-ish news. Elizabeth Warren and other progressives have been pushing to forgive nearly $2 trillion in student loans entirely, which would have a hugely positive effect on the economy because all of those folks would be able to use that money to instead pay off loans back to the government. They could do stuff like buy houses and otherwise invest in the economy. Have children. Debt relief advocates and some Democrats had been pressuring uh, President Biden to extend the payment pause as the country continues to navigate the economic uncertainty of the coronavirus pandemic. Many also argued that it was unfair to let the moratorium expire at the end of September without giving borrowers ample time to prepare. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona said in a statement today, quote, the payment pause has been a lifeline that allowed millions of Americans to focus on their families, health and finances instead of student loans during the national emergency. As our nation's economy continues to recover from a deep hole, the final extension will give students and borrowers the time they need to plan for restart and ensure a smooth pathway back to repayment. You know what would also help? Canceling that debt entirely, uh, Mr. Secretary. Consumer advocates have warned that turning the federal student loan payments back on will be a massive undertaking. It will require a significant amount of outreach from the Biden administration to make sure that borrowers know about it and that they know the payments are due once again. The Education Department said they'll begin reaching out to borrowers in the coming days to notify them about the extension and will provide resources to plan for the restart. The payment moratorium, unfortunately, does not apply at all to borrowers with privately held loans, however. While this temporary relief is welcome, it does not go far enough, said Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, as well as Senator Elizabeth Warren, as well as Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. In a joint statement on Friday, we continue to call on the administration to use its existing executive authority to cancel 
$50,000 of student debt per student. Student debt cancellation, they say, is one of the most significant actions that President Biden can take right now to build a more just economy and to address racial inequity. The White House, however, has said that the Education Department is reviewing Biden's legal authority to wipe out debt through executive action, but the administration has been unable to provide a timeline for that review. Biden has said that he does not believe he has the authority to cancel student debt unilaterally, but that he would support Congress passing a bill canceling $10,000 in debt. Why just 10000 Why not 50000 Why not all of it? I don't know. See, I told you, good-ish news. The Federal Reserve estimated that in the second quarter of 2021, Americans owed more than $1.7 trillion in student loans, all of which, if forgiven, would go where? Into the economy. So, uh, you know, you know who might have a good uh, snarky comment on all of this? The Daily Show which is taking a summer vacation right now. How dare they? <laughs> uh, you don't see us doing that, although they're giving me an idea. Anyway, we will remedy uh, their vacation a little bit, maybe, with the co-creator of The Daily Show, who joins us next right here on the Bradcast. You don't want to miss it. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. Oh, yeah. And and it ain't easy writing the book every day. Don't I know it? So I suspect does my guest today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In 2000, Al Gore claimed he invented the Internet. More recently, in 2021, Donald Trump claimed he invented the COVID vaccine. But before either of them, back in 1996, my guest today claims... She invented The Daily Show on Comedy Central. Critics called this Nightline episode politically motivated, but uh, I watched it. It was really just a very dignified recitation of the names and faces uh, of those that had died. Well, John, you've put your finger on a major problem. How does one report facts in an unbiased way when the facts themselves are biased? <laughs> did, I'm sorry, Rob, did you say the facts? The facts are biased? That's right, John. From the names of our fallen soldiers to the gradual withdrawal of our allies to the growing insurgency, it's become all too clear that facts in Iraq have an anti-Bush agenda. <laughs> yeah, that kind of sums up America over the past couple of decades. Two and a half decades now after its inception. After giving the world Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Rob Corddry, Rob Riggle, Samantha Bee, John Oliver, and frankly, too many more to name here, including hosts Trevor Noah, John Stewart, and originally Craig Kilborn, for whom my guest apologizes, 
and while helping to put our world into its appropriately snarky perspective each night at 11 p.m. or so, unless you live in flyover country in the Midwest, from whence uh, she, both she and I originally hail, as she is still probably a favorite daughter in her hometown of Minneapolis for our listeners on the great AM 950 up there. This past week, The Daily Show celebrated its 25th anniversary. And how did they celebrate it? Well, incredibly enough, by apparently not celebrating it at all, at least not being on air at all for the first time in about 25 years. Its current host, Trevor Noah, decided after a year and a half or so of doing what had been renamed The Daily Social Distancing Show from his apartment in New York City, that he needed a break to rethink the show before returning, at least in theory, to the studio before a live audience, in theory, which is scheduled to happen, in theory, in late September after a well-deserved rest. Am I jealous? Yes, I am. So, for now, without a daily show each night to at least help me wind down from the madness of each day's madness, and, of course, after another hellish week of troubling topics and coverage... In these United States today, at least, we get The Daily Show's co-creator and former head writer, Liz, with two Zs, Winstead, joining us to talk about all of this because maybe it will cheer one or both of us up. Liz Winstead is also a co-founding host of the late, occasionally great Air America back in the day where she co-hosted a mid-morning show with some lady named Rachel Maddow. No idea whatever happened to her. In addition to all of that, Liz Winstead has arguably helped change the landscape of how Americans get their news. Whether that's a good or bad thing, I'm not sure. I will ask her momentarily. And as she also continues to do stand-up when pandemics allow, Liz is also now the head of Abortion Access Front, a New York City-based reproductive rights organization she founded in 2015, which I'm sure will definitely cheer us all up. It has been a long time, so welcome back to the broadcast, Ms. with two Zs, Winstead. Well, you know, what took you so long, Brad, with one D? <laughs> Listen, I, I, re- I read your your Facebook If I, I think <laughs> I read your Facebook page correctly. Your birthday was this past week, and, a, and a, it was a really, really big one? It was one? yesterday. Well, it was yesterday. Yes, I turned 60. Well, mm-hmm. a, a happy birthday, Liz. Why, uh, thank you. I'm honored you would join us on such a week. Uh, And by the way, I must apologize to Al Gore because he didn't really say he invented the Internet. And I hate to perpetuate that, you know, big lie, even for a joke, Uh, although anything for a joke. Am I right? Uh, Liz, it has been 25 years, incredibly enough, since you and Madeline Smithberg co-created The Daily Show. So do you get tired of being asked to talk about The Daily Show? And before you give me your answer, Liz, let me just note that I hope not, because I wanted to have you on today to ask you to talk about The Daily Show. (laughs) Um, You know, I don't, because I think the origin story of The Daily Show is, is something that when people want to ask me about those origins, I think it's important because I think a lot of people, A, don't know that two women created the show and mm. they don't understand, like, where it came from, how it came to be, and mm-hmm. that Madeline and I were, you know, moved into an apartment building together on the same in the same year, became friends. She was uh, producing John Stewart's syndicated talk show. I was doing one-woman shows about the first Gulf War and mm-hmm. screaming about the government. 
And, um, you know, together we, uh, I worked on John's show first. That show got canceled. John moved on to do, he got swept up into a development deal with David Letterman's company. And then our bosses at that show ran Comedy Central and then brought us on and said, hey, we want to do a show that responds to the world every night that's kind of like Sports Center. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no. How about if you do a show that's sort of like, um, takes on the media and all this other stuff. And they were like, okay. And I was like, wait, what? You just said, okay. And here's the part that's the craziest yeah. is I had never run anything in my life. Like I a segment produced on a TV show a couple of times, but I had no business being the head writer of a show. Uh-huh. Madeline was head season chops at being an EP. But so, um, the thing they said to us was, we don't, we think the show needs to, find its feet on the air, so we're going to guarantee you a year of work. So without having to do a pilot, we were able to hire people away from news, which was the key ingredient, was we hired some comedy writers, but mostly we hired disgruntled news producers who (laughs) there is no one funnier on planet Earth Uh than a person who is a disgruntled news person. And that's really what helped us, like, hit the mark um, the way the you know Brian Unger was the first hire of correspondence who right. came from CBS News, and you know he really he laid the path for every single correspondent after him, and he taught people that eyebrow raise and that fake earnestness and that fake sincerity and right. how to say really ridiculous things really smart, and um, <laughs> you know we just went from there, and it was um, it was off to the races. You know we followed the news and the media that we were given at the time. It's sort of like Rumsfeld. You know, you can only, it's it's whatever he said about the thing that you know that you, we have at the time and the thing that you were given, blah, blah, blah. Right. So we were those people. Well, I, you know, and I was going to ask you uh, if this was a tough sell at Comedy Central, but apparently not. It sounds like they were just like, no. sure, take a year to do it. Nobody does that anymore. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, yeah, the thing that was interesting was the real fight at Comedy Central was, um, keeping it political uh-huh. and keeping it newsy rather than pushing it into the pop culture space. Oh. That is where I did not make any friends with network executives, um, and that is where I created lasting bonds with the writers and producers on the show because I was. we were all understood that the media was just, like, derelict in their responsibility of reporting on things that were important. Mm-hmm. And to do an Entertainment Tonight parody or to highlight, you know, it just doesn't have any legs. We mm. wouldn't be having a conversation about the 25 years of The Daily Show if it was a show that simply just, um, you know, was dragging celebrities for Phil. Like, mm-hmm. what's the point of that, you know? And so we pushed back a lot, and we would do that in ways that were didn't ingratiate you, like turning scripts in late and, like, you know, yeah, sure, we'll change that, and then kind of really not changing it. And so we... <laughs> Um, you know, as long as it wasn't like going to get the network in trouble yeah. by like FCC standards, I was like, I'd rather go down knowing that every night I created a show that was um, exposing the hypocrisy of the people in the news, but also the people making the news. Uh-huh. I'd be fine if they fired me tomorrow. I kind of said that to myself every day. And and I know you have sort of a, a strange relationship now with the show and its, uh, its various hosts from the original one, Craig Kilborn to Jon Stewart, maybe Trevor Noah, I don't know. But in 1996, when you came up with this idea... 
Did did you even dream or or maybe just even hope that it would have sort of the undeniable impact that it really has come to have on this nation for good or bad? We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, I mean, it's it's had an extraordinary effect on the nation, the way we look at news over the past 25 years. Was there any sense of that at all when you began the show or was this just like, hey, let's get up a comedy show every night? I mean, I, I think that I would be a massive narcissist to think that I was going to create the show that changed the way we look at news and that was going to last for 95 years. No, I did not think that. Um, but what I did know was um, from doing these shows that I had done, one-woman shows about media and hypocrisy, I had no idea that um, I could create a show that was like going to be like this. But what I did know was that through my one-woman shows about the media and about people being really frustrated mm -hmm. with not knowing what was going on in the news, um, I watched myself in real time with live audiences, how they responded to that. Mm -hmm. So I knew there was an appetite for dragging the news. Uh, you know, the one thing I didn't realize was, A, when we launched, and this is important, there was only CNN. And then mm. um, that guy named Roger Ailes that maybe you remember. I heard of him. He had a little thing called America's Talking at the time yes. that turned into CNBC. Yes. And then, so we launched, MSNBC launched a couple weeks after us, and then Fox launched that same year in October. So we started out with really making fun of local news mm -hmm. and sort of the, the news landscape was that there was like 17 news magazines mm -hmm. on TV and it was like, you've got to be kidding me, stop with this. Right. And then to having an explosion of 24-hour news and how they had to keep up and they did it poorly. And so I guess what I never counted on was that they would be so bad at their job <laughs> that it would make us have so much to work with that we right. could sustain and it was really just the easiest thing in the world is just follow the trends and then um, throw those trends back in their faces. And the satire and the fun really comes from not just throwing it back in their faces, but also adding to the comedy, what are the results of all of this? Mm -hmm. You know, you create a dumber electorate. You create an idiocracy. And we've seen that play out. Yeah. I mean, if you go back and look at these older, you know, tapes, um, and, and, and recordings of the show, you'll see that so much of what we were satirizing hasn't changed, and even the idiocy of the people hasn't changed. Did, well, and to that end, did the, did the show that you ended up uh, producing, did it resemble what you pitched? In other words, uh, that you had hoped to produce. Did, you know, was that the show, and is it now, I guess, the show that you uh, wanted to that day when you and Madeline started dreaming this thing up? It, was, it came out exactly as we wanted it, and that part what felt really exciting, that we were given such free reign that um, the show looked the way we wanted it, had the style the way we wanted it, and um, that part felt really good. And I just don't know how many people are lucky enough to... Mm. Um, be able to have instincts play out and have somebody not challenge you on a lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And that was like, oh, my God, that's really, it's really happening for us. They're really going to let us do it. And so that was really cool. And, and 25 years later, uh, do you still recognize the show today? How different is it now from what you originally envisioned? Because really the, the structure has not 
changed all that much, setting aside the, the past year or so and the pandemic and the daily social distancing show. But even there, uh, it hasn't really changed all that much since uh, you began this thing 25 years ago. It seems to me, do you see it that way and do you watch it? Do you even watch it anymore? Oh, of course I do. Yeah, no, and I think that to me is the greatest gift I could have given to any of the talented people who have hosted the show is we created a foundation and and what has evolved from when I started versus what it's become as far as tonally is when we launched it, um, we launched it as a, sh- a writer-driven show um, that was about, you know, that was this, this news satire, right? And so we had um, purposely, it was more like Colbert's old Comedy Central show where mm-hmm. everyone was in character mm-hmm. and there wasn't sort of the voice of the viewer. Uh, when John took over, it was, it evolved into John's voice, which I think is a great thing because I think having somebody in the chair who's a news junkie who can also be sort of your gut instinct mm-hmm. and then be surrounded by the idiots that are the correspondents, um, that was a really great evolution. But the bones of the show never have changed. And because it, we built a foundation that's just incredible mm-hmm. and that works so well. And I feel really proud of that foundation. Yeah, I know. And I think you and I have talked in the past that uh, about how Craig Kilborn was decided, the first host, was decidedly not a news junkie like Jon Stewart. Uh, and I think we've also talked about this years ago. I don't know if it was on air or not, but uh, you told me, I actually watched the show, apparently, in what was, you told me, the very first week on air with Kilborn as the host, and there was no studio audience. And I thought, yes. I thought that was the coolest and most bizarre television I had ever seen. I absolutely loved it without a studio it was the audience. Dumbest idea we ever had. To not have the audience? <laughs> that, you know, it's, I thought like hell yeah. to not have an audience. I was like, let's look like, like, let's have, like, let's just keep it like a news show and let's yeah. trust the audience and let's just let them laugh at home. And it was such death no, that week that no. I was like, anything, yes, please <laughs> bring an audience. We must have an audience. No, it was great. And I just want to tell you, because obviously that's one of your regrets. Uh, you are wrong to regret it. I loved it. At least I loved it. Uh, and ironically... You're the only person. I'm the only person that matters, Liz. Also... I keep forgetting that. Yes, please keep that in mind. Also, ironically, by the way, that has also been the case for the past year or so during the pandemic uh, with Trevor Noah doing it from his apartment and all of the other shows, all of the other, I should say, copycat shows in many ways, uh, you know, doing it without an audience. I, I just loved it, and I wish you had kept it that way. And you were wrong to uh, change it. That's all I want to say on that. But uh, listen, I think uh, actually think Trevor is doing a great job as a host. He wasn't at first. I think he is now. Same thing with John Stewart. Was not as good at first. Grew into the show. But did they make a mistake when John left in not replacing uh, uh, him with Sam B with a woman? who, when they had a chance after uh, uh, Stuart left, or frankly with you, for that matter, uh, though I don't know if you wanted the job. I mean, I don't, I don't know that... Um, I think that... I, I think there's a lot of people that think that certain people weren't offered the job, mm-hmm. and uh, certain jobs, and I think that um, there was a lot of people, Sam B, 
John Oliver, um, who really loved the genre and wanted to do their own. I mean, mm. I think that a lot of people were um, may have thought, um, do I want to sit and work through the scrutiny that I watched John go through, or do I want to, because I have the talent and the cloud and the cachet, mm. go out on my own? And do some different things. Because when you look at Sam B's show or you look at John Oliver's show, you know, two spinoffs of what that is, mm-hmm. um, they're both not on Comedy Central. And mm-hmm. they both also um, have the freedom to not have to be funny all the time. You know, mm-hmm. they can tell a longer story. They can dive into topics where they're not always being told, remember, this is Comedy Central. And I think that for like both of those people, it seems like that is... Um, that's a choice they made, and I think it's a really smart one because I think both of those people have came out of the gate with shows that were incredibly smart yeah. and incredibly in-depth, and I think that it's because they were allowed to um, do it in their own way, mm-hmm. and they didn't have to be compared to The Daily Show. So I think that that was really wise. Interesting, and good to know. And yeah, I mean, no easy shoes to fill coming in after John no. Stewart. Good God. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I applaud Trevor Noah, um, because I, I would not, I, I don't know that I would want that job if they asked me, you know, after a John Stewart uh, uh, killed it the way he did for so many years. Uh, Liz Winstead, the, the Colbert and the other Daily Show alums, uh, they sort of reference this a lot. I, I've always wondered about this. They, you know, they talk about doing field pieces and going out to interview people and that is a horrible experience for them for some reason presumably because they end up sort of playing the bad guy the right winger guy to you know so many people who are actually doing good things how does that work do those people being interviewed know they're being interviewed by a satirical news show when they when they agree to to sit down and talk i think sometimes they do i think sometimes they don't i think the thing that um was surprising and consistent to us was whatever came out of the piece, Mm -hmm. they were thrilled and thought it was great. They were thrilled to see themselves. They Uh liked the way they were portrayed. And it's like you, and and I think that we live in an America that we're finally understanding now that um, there is no shame from a lot of people in the world. You know, when you are at a party and you say, you know, I I know that Hillary Clinton was running a, you know, pedophile ring outside of the basement of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and even though that pizza parlor doesn't have a basement, I firmly still believe that, um, you're like, it, people don't see their own selves at all. Mm. And so... Wha- and so that, that part is so crazy to me. And, and so while it might be uncomfortable doing the piece, later on it pays off when they see what the point actually was? Is that what I'm getting? I mean, I think that it's a lot of things, and I don't want to speak because I think everybody has different experiences when they do things, so I don't want to speak for why or anybody's personal why. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that a lot of times um, subjects are chosen because they've already shown themselves on some level to be... Um, to be uh, somebody who, like, these people live amongst us, you guys. You should really figure it out. And I think for so long, uh, it's like, just ignore people that are lying or mean or wrong or Mm. dumb. And that's kind of why we're in this mess. And I think one of the things that Daily Show tried to do constantly was, like, say, do not 
underestimate um, the stupidity of people and do not underestimate the danger of that stupidity. Mm -hmm. And I think that we did for years, and we're literally in the space we are now because we just thought we could close our eyes, ignore it, and it would go away. And and, uh, Liz... I know I, I raised this question in my intro. I, I know that you and I both agree that, you know, via your work on The Daily, not to mention on Air America's morning show, uh, helping to introduce the world to Rachel Maddow, uh, a case can be made that you, yes, I'm going to blame it on you, Liz, uh, have helped change the way that America uh, gets its news with, uh, at one point, I believe, more young people saying they got their news from The Daily Show than from the not fake news sources out there. Uh, is that a good or a bad thing in retrospect? And and how has it, looking back, changed the American news landscape as you see it? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's changed the news landscape because the news landscape, it's like, what's interesting is um, when The Daily Show started getting better numbers, you know, I remember watching cable news and seeing them do like, sort of like trying to be funny with their graphics and that kind of stuff. And it's like, that's not what people want. The Daily Show is responding to the fact that you aren't actually doing in-depth journalism or doing a follow-up question or the myriad of other things you're not doing. That's why we exist. You're not supposed to be more like us. You're supposed to do your job so we don't exist. Mm. So that was like the part that I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I read those articles a lot, you know, in these polls, and young people say they get their news from the Daily Show, all this stuff. And I often wonder, like, how could you like the Daily Show if you already didn't get news into your head? Like, you, w- if it's not like it gives mm. you a primer with which then the joke works. Right. So um, I always sort of was skeptical of that. Mm. Um, but it, good or bad, I don't know. I think that what's bad is, um, or interesting, is that a lot of people were like, oh, don't you think that the Daily Show is creating, like, a whole bunch of cynics and people, it's not really doing anything other than making people more cynical. And it's like, no, the fact that we have crappy news is what makes people cynical. Mm. And those cynical people created the daily show. Don't blame the people watching the daily show Mm -hmm. for wanting to laugh at the place that is failing them. It's like, that's crazy. It, It doesn't make any sense to me. Like hold the media accountable. I'll never forget when Jon Stewart announced he was leading the daily show and people were apoplectic and having nervous breakdowns about like, Yes. What's going to happen? What are we going to do? You're it's right. like, shouldn't you shouldn't you just take a pause and say, oh, my God, I'm actually upset that the comedian who's pretending to be a newscaster is leading the show instead of being ragefully angry that I have no place else to go to get information mm. to make me smarter. Good. Like, Ex- that's where you should be putting your you anger. Know, excellent point, although I got to say, I understand those people. I feel those people because, you know, The Daily Show has for 25 years, and you know I was watching that first week, you know, sort of helped me put things into a perspective that I am eternally grateful to you for, Liz Winstead. And I wanted to, uh, we're short on time here, so we're gonna, I'm going to have to ask you back to talk about uh, your activist, important activism uh, with Abortion Access Front. But that gives me an excuse to have you back, so I'm just fine with that. But uh, last question. Let's que- do it. Yeah. For sure. A last question here. Do you miss the daily grind and the pressure of cranking out material on a daily basis amid one horrible news cycle after another, whether it was for The Daily Show on Comedy Central or on Unfiltered on Air America Radio or 
Are you much happier now not doing that, and I am asking for a friend? Um, I think what's hilarious is that you definitely have to have me back on because I'm still doing it every single day with Abortion Access Front, and I'm cranking it out every day. And um, so I'm still in it. There is no break. It's just I'm not doing it on TV. I'm doing it all over your interweb. Gotcha. All right. Well, we will have you back soon to talk about that because I imagine there'll be an abortion issue or two to be discussed in the days ahead, sadly. Well, yes, um, exactly. In fact, uh, I don't know if your listeners know, but Roe v. Wade is probably going to be overturned in 2022. The Mississippi case that's going before the Supreme Court in fall is going to probably um, destroy abortion access as we know it, which means that the most marginalized people who have been just suffering at the hands of these people anyway, um, you know, women of color, black women, um, BIPOC women, and we all need to act like we actually care about people and their access to reproductive care because that is your first line of defense to your own bodily autonomy and self-determination. And if we don't protect it, we're actually not human rights advocates at all. We're just lying about it. Thank you. Thank you for getting that in. I had hoped <laughs> if we had time, because I wanted to ask, if is America prepared for this? I don't think we are. No, America's not prepared for it, for no. sure. So we need to get them prepared. So you got to have me back on, Brad. I'm happy to do it, Liz. You can find Liz Winstead okay. on the Twitters at Liz Winstead. You can find her on the Facebooks at also Liz Winstead, where, as she notes, uh, she is also the propagator of both filth and socialism. And, of course, you can find her work for a- Abortion Access Front, via the Twitters at Access Front. Liz Winstead, creator of The Daily Show, thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations on 25 You're years. You're the best, Brad. You're the best. Stay Take care. Honey. Bye. Okay, uh, quick break, and we're back with, you know what we haven't done in a while, Des? What? Some viewer mail. Oh, goody. I mean, listener mail. <laughs> Are we on the radio still? Yes. Told you it's been a long week. Uh, that's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2012. That was the day a release of flammable vapor led to a fire at the Chevron Refinery in Richmond, California. A level three community warning system alert was issued for the cities of Richmond, San Paulo, and North Richmond. Toxic black smoke could be seen for miles while the fire burned for hours. 19 workers were nearly incinerated trying to escape the fire. More than 15,000 area residents sought medical treatment for chest pains, breathing problems, headaches, and sore throats. The Chemical Safety Board found that the release was caused by a leaking pipe that eventually ruptured. The pipe, made of carbon steel, suffered sulfitic corrosion. The Chemical Safety Board noted that for 40 years, the refinery industry had known that carbon steel corrodes at a much faster rate than higher chromium content steel pipe. The pipe in question had no shutoff valve to isolate the leak. In its final report, the Chemical Safety Board issued a number of findings. They found that Chevron knew of the corrosion but did nothing to prevent it. As well, Chevron not only failed to perform 100% component inspections, but it also rejected earlier recommendations to inspect and replace the pipe that would eventually fail. When it came to emergency response, Chevron failed to identify and communicate process controls or damage mechanisms 
systems in the incident command structure. They also had no leak response guidance or formal protocol to determine how to handle a process leak. The Chemical Safety Board found the safety culture lacking. Workers were reluctant to use their stop work authority and were often encouraged to continue operations despite hazardous conditions. The Chemical Safety Board issued a number of recommendations, including more stringent regulatory enforcement. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. We'll be back soon. Ooh, bet I look good in some sheets. It's been a long week. Think I'm finna kick up my feet. I'm craving isolation and a few tangerines. I crave a little me time on my free time. But time be moving slow. But ain't no stagger when I step. I'm a casual man, so I always watch before I dread. I ain't mad. I'm just trying to get my ass about this bit. It's real hard to eat fresh off of ties around your neck. Oh, it's all good, baby. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Liz Winstead is delightful. Yes, thank you so much, Minneapolis, for giving us Liz there Winstead. There you go. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, she is delightful, and we do need to have her back more often. Unfortunately, we will probably have less happy things to talk to her about in the future sure. than the... 25th anniversary of The Daily Show. Uh, in any case, uh, as long as we were uh, talking there about the uh, failure of national news outlets, which is really the whole reason The Daily Show is so important. Yes. Uh, as always, my attempts to counter those failures with responsible coverage lead to questions from listeners. Uh, this from... Uh, <laughs> we from, get questions. Yes, we do. This from April. Um uh, that's her name, not, not the from month? the month. Okay, yeah. Good. Uh, hey there, B. Hope you and Desi are well. Well, thank you, April. Hope you are too. I'm sincerely confused about how to think about this phrase. You have often expressed exasperation, I think, when right wing info, in quotes, is independently, verifiably false. She says, I share this frustration too, but then again, I wonder if you're a right wing nut, where do you go to independently verify the info you're hearing, say on faux news? Oh. Wouldn't you go to OAN or right wing nut broadcaster, etc.? And wouldn't you believe you're verifying your facts that way? She says, so then does, quote, independently verifiable come down to numbers, i.e. how many outlets say the same thing? But the wing nuts are growing, aren't they? Does it mean to be confirmed by an organization that has been established as reputable? Is there a certifying body declaring news organizations as reputable? So I guess I'm wondering, what does it mean to have a piece of info independently verified as true or false? Thanks, B. I'm not a journalist, so the answer may be clear to those in the biz. April. Well, uh, good question, question, April. Excellent, yeah. And clearly it is... It is not clear to those in the biz, um, and it's not clear to listeners, apparently, because it seems that my reference to independently verifiable information might be unclear. When I say that I only like to report independently verifiable information, what I mean is that you don't have to take my word for it, that you can uh, or I can 
verify it by myself or that you can verify it by yourself from the actual source, from the original sourcing. It's not simply that someone else is saying the same thing as well. So the primary source. Correct. You can you can get to the primary source. You don't have to simply trust what I am telling you or trust my opinion or my explanation about something. In fact, you should never trust me. You, you should be able to check out my sourcing and get the same information. It's not just me giving you my analysis and expecting you to believe me, to trust me. In fact, I, I really I hope that you don't. And I hope uh, that all legitimate news outlets uh, would operate the same way, frankly. Sadly, many do not. Yeah, it's like show your work in math class. Yes. So if I claim that the Justice Department is taking xyz action about something it likely means that you can go find the actual memo or the case filing or announcement from the doj themselves on their website or elsewhere independently of me you don't have to take my word for it and i try to share uh links when i post the show at bradblog.com each night to those sources of information and we do the same thing with the Green News Report. If I say that yep. there's a study that reports this, I'll link not only to news articles that sort of put context and understanding around that, mm -hmm. but also to the original study. Right. You don't have to believe Desi. Or the articles. And you shouldn't. You can go to the you study. Can, you can <laughs> go right to the study. You don't have to take our word for anything. On the other hand, if Fox News says, for example, uh, Democrats want to ban hamburgers... Well, I would say, OK, where is the independently verifiable evidence of that? Is there a bill that has been proposed and supported by Democrats calling for a ban on hamburgers? Has Joe Biden given a speech where he has said, I want to ban hamburgers? Or are they simply making stuff up or extrapolating from something that someone said and then turning it into some sort of a scare report, which is, uh, by and large, what Fox and the other right wing outlets do pretty much 99 percent of the time on just about everything that they pretend to cover uh, these fake news propaganda outlets. Uh, and not funny ones like The Daily Show. <laughs> uh, Biden's plan to take away your hamburgers uh, in that case, would not be independently verifiable because it is not true and there is no actual independently verifiable evidence for it. But Fox viewers, they're simply and apparently happily, uh, you know, taking uh, whatever Fox says to them and, you know, that Dems want to ban hamburgers. So, no, it doesn't help if... Another right-wing outlet, OAN in this case, also says the same thing, uh, that Dems want to ban hamburgers, but that they have zero independently verifiable evidence that uh, really anybody, uh, any of the Democrats anyway, actually want to do that. Does that make sense? Made sense to me. All right. I hope so. And thank you for that excellent uh, uh, email, April. You can email me as well. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Uh, one more I think we have time for. Listener Ed P. Uh, has what his subject line on this email describes in all caps as criticism oh dear. for us, which he sent along uh, with a donation at bradblog.com slash donate, oddly enough. 
Uh, Ed writes, I just sent you a few ducats. Ducats? How do you say that? Ducats. Ducats, yes. (laughs) Just sent you a few ducats. So here comes the constructive criticism. One, you're not on WCPT in Chicago. True. What's up with that WCPT? I keep hearing from your listeners exactly that, that we should be on your station, but we are not. Why am I asking you? Since I'm not on that station and they're not hearing me anyway, I don't know. (laughs) Don't ask us. Ask them. Two, Green News Report is not on the CBS Sunday morning show. Tell me about it. That's my mom's favorite show, by the way. We should be on it. Three, you continue to refuse to accept what by now must be hundreds of invitations to appear on Meet the Press. (laughs) Well, my mailbox uh, must be sending those invites into the spam folder or something, Ed. Four, you you did not agree to host Face the Nation while What's-Her-Name is out for pregnancy leave. Again, this is true. uh, Well, not so much that I wouldn't agree, but see that spam folder issue, I guess. Uh, five, your refusal to have a weekly show on PBS, like Bill Moyers, Now, Need to Know, etc., is just bizarre, writes Ed. Well, that part is true. I, uh, I refuse to have anything to do with those bastards at PBS. <laughs> uh, he had, sorry to be so harsh, but it needed to be said. I'm very grateful for what you and Debbie do. Oh, but it's time to pick up the pace. That's okay, Ed. It's Desi, D-E-S-I. Oh, it is? <laughs> uh, he adds, P.S., when you talk to PBS, mention my name. I am sure they will get right on it. <laughs> Excellently done, Ed. Yes, uh, and thank you for that criticism. It's harsh, <laughs> but I think we needed it. We'll manage somehow. Uh, and uh, I, will, uh, I will mention Ed next time PBS calls. So thank you for that. Uh, and for the ducats. Ducats? Not ducats. Right. Ducats. All right. Uh, you too can leave some ducats for Desi and me <laughs> via bradblog.com slash donate, at least until I get that uh, spam folder uh, problem fixed up and my invitations to appear on Meet the Press and host Face the Nation <clears throat> start showing up. We could desperately use your support until then. And one more here. It's a one-liner, so I can fit it in here. From okay. Ron C. Subject line, you got cribbed. He quotes the uh, Washington Post. I think it's a headline, uh, but maybe, I don't know, it could be a quote from anywhere saying, Republicans aren't conservatives, they're nihilists. Oh, nihilists. Oh, see? <laughs> Damn it. I deserve the criticism. Uh, anyway, I'm, uh, I'm just glad they're starting to notice, uh, you know, only about 15 years too late, but I will take it. I Better wish they would never. stop calling those people conservatives. They are anything but. And the media just continue to do them the favor by calling them uh, conservatives. Washington Post, AP, uh, New York, all of them, all of them. And Democratic elected officials themselves. Stop it. Knock it off. Conservatives is something that actually polls well. They're not conservatives. They are nihilists. Nihilists. Okay. Never mind that and the do cats. <laughs> Anyway, uh, thanks for the email, Ron. Also, my thanks to my guest today, co-creator of The Daily Show, the great Liz Winstead, founder and champion at Abortion Access Front. And yes, we will have her on to talk about that in the days ahead. Unfortunately, I I suspect we'll have too many reasons to do so. I know. And can I say again, thank you, Minneapolis, for Liz Winstead? Yeah, I think you mentioned that. Yeah. (laughs) 
Uh, all right. Also, thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me an email. As I noted, I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And I am Green News at bradblog.com if yeah. you'd like to add something there. Yeah. Send some mail to her for a change. <laughs> Is that it? Oh, yeah. yeah. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad blog. And yes, Desi Doyen is Green News Report on the Twitters, yep. just in case you wanted to add that. That's it. We will see you all there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. for my chicken why am i stressing won't even address it leave my problems on my nice and work